You asked whether someone knows what they're perfect. Well, I don't know for certain how you'd explain that, Brother Lee, unless you had experienced it and could say to someone, here's what I felt. Knowing that Paul clearly describes himself as less than that level at some point, and later describes himself as having met that target at another point, he had to have known. The only conclusion I can come up with, based on not having experienced it yet, is there would be a peace that you would have, that if nothing else lets you know that you would come to that place, it'd be that peace. You'd have to know if you weren't being tempted. There's things in our lives that we know don't bother us anymore that maybe used to really bother us when we were younger or whatever the case might be. Maybe God just took something out of us that really used to be a temptation to us. I don't know how many people I've known through the years who had a temptation to smoke or to drink or whatever it was that God just plucked it out. And they said, from one day to the next, that is not how it normally works. You know that takes God. I just laid him down. Yeah. I just laid him down and looked at him for a week and my Oh, there you go. I kept one on the beer that I left in there after he helped me quit drinking. Yeah, I remember my first met Kevin. He wanted to show me his beer in the refrigerator, which sounds terrible, but what he was doing was telling me, I stopped drinking, and I kept that one there to remind myself. So don't keep it. Throw that thing away, brother. (laughs) But it was a good point that he was making, you know. He knew what he had gone through, how the Lord had helped him. There are things that we can look back on, just like an example of that, where God just took it out. You know the feeling that was different. There's nothing comes that tempts me. There's nothing. I've, I've cast it all aside. And I'm, <laughs> just not there anymore. Well, thank God for that, Brother Lee. It's not there anymore. And I hope that's a permanent situation. The, the thoughts are irritating, but they're not tempting. I understand that. There's things that don't tempt me anymore that if it comes to my mind, though, if I'm reminded of it, it bothers me, it irritates me. To, I understand that. I understand that. We've talked about this before, I think, in some Bible studies, but I do believe a point will come. And I tie it right into that scripture where it says he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think a point will come where everything that is that kind of a situation for you, it may not tempt you, but it just hurts you to think about it. It aggravates you to think about it. God will just take those things out of your memory. I don't want anything that's contrary to the standard of righteousness. I don't want to think about it. Well, Brother Lee, I think that's part of what will happen when he wipes every tear from our eyes. It won't just be things that we're sorrowing over like a heartbreak. I sorrow over some of the things I did, which I know is what you're talking about. Thinking back to some of the things you did, and you said, oh, my Lord, if I could have reversed that, not done that, had taken that back, have never been there and done those things. It's not that I'm tempted to do them again. I understand what you're saying. I believe the time will come when there'll be no longer any need. See, right now, until we are beyond the shadow of doubt, until we are at the place where there is no possibility of us failing, those reminders will always be necessary to keep us humble, to keep us remembering where the Lord's brought us from. I think we can come to a point, though, I'm talking about out in the future, there's a point at which I think God will remove some of those things because it isn't going to be necessary anymore for you to remember some of the failures of the past because the past will be wiped out in terms of the negative elements of the past. It's degrading to think of them. I understand. Sister Cindy? If this is not the season of absolute perfection, don't you, is it the mercy of God that will teach those in the second resurrection how to think about what you might mean by all of those pieces, Sister Cindy. As far as the season, I do not believe it's the season of absolute perfection yet, but I believe it's always been the season of perfection. You just need to realize what I mean by perfection. God has always expected us to get our act together. God's always expected us to stop sinning. 
We've never been at a place where God was, you know what, I know it's tough. Right now it's okay if you do some sinful things. He's never been okay with us sinning. But I think that there is a measure of something needed that we don't have yet to deal with some of the internal things. That's why there will be some people who will come up in that resurrection and have an opportunity to go on to perfection, is what we've been touching the edges of here tonight, that did not die in a state of perfection. They might have loved the Lord, but they did not reach that level. And I would say there will be many, many people, far more, that will come up in that resurrection than the resurrection most people think they're coming up in, unfortunately. Most people think they're coming up in the first, but the first resurrection is a resurrection for those that are beyond judgment. Not just beyond judgment because of initial conversion, as some in Christendom seem to think that initial conversion puts you beyond judgment. Let me explain how simple it is to answer that. All you do is study the word judge, judgment, just say those words in the New Testament. I'll give you just one example that entirely disproves the whole argument that at initial conversion, you will not have to worry about being judged ever again because the blood of Jesus just took care of everything you could ever do from that point on. Judge not, lest you be judged. We need to judge ourselves, the scripture says. Why do you need to judge yourself if you've already been eternally judged and you could never be judged anything but righteous? I can give scripture after scripture like that that contradicts that idea that you are not going to have to go through a process of judgment. We're all going to be judged. You're not going to be judged for your past sins, though. If you have asked forgiveness... If you've repented of your past sins, that's what, unfortunately, some confuse. They compact together the forgiveness of past sin with the forgiveness of all sin. Those are not the same thing. I mean all sin, past, present, and future. You can't be forgiven of a sin you haven't done yet. What if you don't do it? Just think how illogical it is to say you're being forgiven of anything you might do. That'd be like telling somebody that was a criminal, and who would do this? What kind of judge do you think God is? That'd be like telling someone it's a criminal who has the propensity to go out and murder somebody. They will do this. They'll make a deal with somebody to get a bigger fish, so to speak, and they say it's a big major drug dealer or something. So they get somebody down lower in the food chain and they say, we'll make a deal with you. We will let you off the hook for anything you've ever done up to this point. Maybe you murdered people and everything else because we want to get the bigger fish. We'll pardon you of anything you've done up to this point, but they don't pardon you of things you might do tomorrow. They're not saying, and you can go ahead and murder anybody for the rest of your life as long as you tell us how to catch this big drug deal. That isn't how it works, and God is a better judge than that. It's an incredible enough thing, don't you think, that he would wipe away every bit of your sins? But to think that that means you now have a get-out-of-jail-free card that you can send for the rest of eternity or for the rest of this human life because of Jesus' blood is a crime against Jesus himself to try to make that kind of claim. And it's a serious misconception of the scripture. It's a perfect example of somebody that has taken rungs out of the ladder and they've got a ladder that does not go anywhere. It's only got a couple rungs in it. You're not realizing this isn't getting you anywhere. You're not going from earth to heaven with this kind of ladder. You're only going to get up high enough to barely get a few feet up in the air. It's not how it works. That is not what the Bible describes. There are statements in the Bible that talk about your faith saving you and some of those type of statements, but you have to take them in context, not only with their immediate surrounding statements, but with the whole of Scripture. God did not forgive your past sins so you could do some more sins. What did you think God did? Cleared your debt so you could create some more? Is that really what you think the plan of salvation is? That God went out there and cleared all your past debt, this massive debt that had bankrupted you, and you didn't know how you were going to, you couldn't, all of us were going to die in that bankrupted state. He cleared it off and said, now you've got plenty of room to run your debt back up again and get right back in the situation you were before. What kind of God would he be if he did that? 
That is not what he's doing. He is trying to change us to the point where we won't get ourselves back into debt. And the things you're talking about, Brother Stevens, where you get to a place where there isn't something tempting you anymore, that's like somebody that can't stop shopping, you know. They're a nonstop shopper. And so they're in debt because they can't stop shopping. They're late at night. I don't know if anyone's doing this, so don't get mad at me if you are. But they're late at night on the shopping channels or they're always going out shopping or whatever, and they just can't stop, you know. They love to buy stuff. Somebody pays their debt off. That's not going to stop them. They're going to be like, this is great. Now I can shop even more. I got more of a credit line, you know. But that's not going to solve their problem by clearing their debt. Think about how wise God is. A person that was trying to help somebody like that would clear their debt, but make it impossible for them to keep doing it again. Help them to get out of that situation. Help them to break that pattern. God is that type of a God. He's trying to break the pattern so you don't go back into what you were doing. You don't go back into the sins you were committing. And it takes time. Now, God could, like I said, he can instantaneously perfect you. But you need to ask yourself, do you see any example of that in the Bible? See, before we start applying certain things to God and saying, well, I don't see it in this life that we can be at this level. Nobody's saying this, but I'm saying I've heard some say this. There's no way we'll ever reach that level. So God has to just apparently instantaneously perfect us at some point. Where do you see him instantaneously perfecting anybody in the scripture? Can you think of a single scripture where anybody's instantaneously taken from being unrighteous to being completely righteous? And I mean to never sin again. You could argue somebody is taken from a state of unrighteousness to righteousness when Christ's blood is applied to them, but not never to sin again. So show me an example in the Bible where somebody goes from a state of being unrighteous and wicked and sinful and carnal, and in an instant, show me one scripture. In an instant, they go to being perfect and it's no longer possible for them to sin. There's not one single passage in the entire Bible you're going to find to support that idea. That's not how God works. You're going to find lots of passages talk about the progressive nature of salvation, though. That's the very heart of what you brought up Sunday night, Sister Cindy, with that scripture. Work out your own salvation. It's a process of working. It's going to take some time. It has to be worked out. It doesn't happen instantaneously. So there's a progressive nature to perfection. The degree to which someone can progress is dependent on the power and the knowledge and the other factors that are in place in their day. So you can have somebody like Job or Noah or other individuals in the Old Testament who were referred to with language that is very strong, being called perfect in different contexts, and yet you know they were still struggling with things in terms of sin. Now there's some that I don't know. You know, you pick out somebody like Joseph or Daniel, it'd be hard to even apply any sin to their lives. What are you going to pick out in Daniel's life? You're going to say he had some sin, or Joseph for that matter, really, unless you're going to get nitpicky about his apparent arrogance when he was young. But I honestly think that was just excitement. I don't think he was really wanting to make his parents and his brothers think, ha ha, you're going to be below me. I think he was just so excited. Listen to the dream I had. I had an experience like that one time. I learned my lesson real quick. I was too young to know better that it was a big experience like that. And this is long before I was in the ministry, thank the Lord. It would have been worse in the ministry because you really got hit by somebody. I didn't feel any kind of arrogance about it. I was just so excited God would give me this dream. You know, oh, I got lit up over it. Because, of course, mindset was I must be getting arrogant thinking I'm really something if I think I had this dream. I didn't give myself the dream. I just had a dream. Sometimes you'd be better off just not telling anybody when you have those kind of experiences. I've had some experiences, saints, that I've never told a living soul. I've had a couple that I've only told my wife a little bit of. And there's no one on this earth that I trust more than my wife. There's something, it's not a matter of trust. It's that she would probably think my husband has lost his mind, this experience he had. 
But you know what? Some of the experiences I had that she probably would have said that when we first got married, she would have said, what in the world? Now those are little small things compared to what God's done since then. Now you'd have to look back and say, well, yeah, of course that was God that gave you that experience. So I've learned to trust God, but I've also learned to trust zipping my mouth a few times because you're better off not saying some things, you know, especially if someone thinks you're thinking too highly yourself or of something else, you know. But you look at some of those great men in the Old Testament period. Look, as great as Noah was, he made a mess of some things. As great as Abraham was, he made a mess of some things. He made some bad decisions. There's a few you're going to find. You're going to have an awful hard time trying to apply anything negative to someone like Daniel. Good luck. I, I wouldn't try it. Don't go trying to dig into Daniel's past. Sometimes people cannot resist. They're always trying to dig out something, you know, try to make somebody look bad. But I would advise you to keep your hands off these biblical heroes because if God didn't record anything, you better not go looking for something. There were some great men and women of God. Now, as great as somebody like Job might have been, there's one that was called perfect. Perfect and upright. You really don't get a stronger testimony than that. Because if you didn't know what he meant by perfect, let me add the word upright. Upright refers not just to you being wise in your dealings. It refers to moral uprightness. It's a very picturesque word. And it sounds like this in English. Upright. Like you're standing straight. It means just that. Because if you've got anything that is a monkey on your back or a load of sin that's causing you to bow over, you're not upright. Somebody that's upright is tall and straight and true. And there's nothing that they have to be worried about that is causing them to be under judgment because they're upright. So Job was perfect and upright, but he wasn't perfect like Jesus was perfect. It's certain Job sinned at different points in his life. So his standard of perfection was a standard that wasn't synonymous with the standards expected under the New Testament. And that goes back to what I said just a little bit ago. The degree to which somebody could be sinless was possible under the Old Testament. Somebody could restrain themselves from doing sin. I don't mean they're maybe as a child or a teenager or something they did some, but I mean, you could get to a point in your life. I'm not talking about from birth. I don't know of anybody that from birth, other than Jesus, was sinless. But you could get to a point in your life where you weren't committing sin. I mean external sin. I'm not talking about thoughts that hit you or things that tempt you, that you get tempted and you take control of it. There's been a lot of debate about at what point that becomes sin. When you have a thought that is an evil thought, that's clearly a sinful thought. At what point does it become sin? Is it sin at the moment you think it? Is it sin at the moment you entertain it? The problem is it'd be so hard to differentiate between those moments. They happen so quickly. If you had a thought about something that was an evil thought, it'd be awfully hard for you to say, I know the point at which it started to tempt me. Because usually the moment you have an evil thought, it's tempting you. The moment it flashes in your mind, the temptation's present. So it'd be hard for you to say, well, I had an evil thought, but I wasn't tempted by it. I got a hold of it before it tempted me. It probably tempted you and then you wrestled it down, you know. You kept it from going anywhere. So that's difficult when you start getting into the internal elements. But that doesn't mean that the internal elements aren't important for the reason I gave earlier. Because you're not going to be having those thoughts in the new heavens and the new earth. So at what point do they get removed? I'm talking about a thought that comes to your mind that's a sinful thought that makes you desire something. That is tempting you. If you have a sinful thought that's making you desire something, there's got to come a point at which that doesn't happen anymore. And you'd think, well, I've just got to force those out of my mind. But that's a perfect example of what I mean by there's certain tools that are necessary for certain jobs. Some things you might be able to fill your mind with other thoughts, and that'll keep that out. Some things you might be able to force out by force of will. Some things you're not going to force out with any power you have. It's going to take God to get that feeling or that thought out of your mind. As I always say, it's always going to take God in whatever level. 
But I mean, it's going to take God interacting in a way that's a little bit more direct than just giving you the power to deal with it. Sometimes he doesn't give you the power to deal with that. He just deals with it. He deals with it. And that's the case with some things. And sometimes he takes you through things where, and this is an odd tool, but this is a tool I've seen him use, where he causes you to go through, if you learn the lesson, that is, some people just won't learn it. I've seen people that will not learn this lesson. He causes you to go through one thing of suffering after another, and it seems like nothing can go right in your life. It's one thing after another, whether it's sickness or financial issues, just one thing after another. And it seems like it never ends. And all along, God is trying to get you to straighten up. That's the mechanism he's using. That isn't always true. There's people that have all kinds of issues, financial and health and otherwise. It has nothing to do with this. But sometimes this is the tool God uses. The tool is it becomes so painful to keep doing this. If the pain of continuing and whatever that is becomes greater than whatever pleasure you're getting out of doing it, that comes back to some we were talking about earlier too when talking about how certain things leave you with age. Some things as you get older, physiologically, you lose your desire for. As you get older, you just don't have the same kind of desires for certain things. But that isn't the same thing as overcoming it necessarily. You'd have to be able to live in the prime of your life and handle it. I've heard people say, well, at some point you're going to get old enough that you won't have certain drives anymore. And that's all that's going to happen in the resurrection. It'll be like getting old enough where you don't have drives anymore. You're going to be, I personally believe, in the prime of your life in the resurrection. There'd be no reason for God to resurrect you at 90 years of age or something. He's going to resurrect you in a body that's in the prime of your life. You're going to have to be in that place and still capable of resisting things if you still had health and energy and other things. To the question of when it occurs and how it occurs, I think perfection in terms of restraining sin is possible right now. Now, that sounds strong. People have a hard time with the word perfection. I think keeping yourself from doing active sins is possible right now. That doesn't mean we're all doing it. I'm just saying I believe it's possible. I don't think there's any reason somebody has to sin right now. I'm talking about in external actions. There's things that can happen to you that can happen so fast that they cause you to respond in a way that's sinful that might be external, losing your temper or something, that might seem like it's beyond your control. But most things are not beyond your control. As we develop more the nature of Christ, there will be things that will change in our nature. Some of those things can happen pretty quick, like we were talking about some of these things that are no longer temptations. But everything doesn't change in a heartbeat like that. Some things can be near instantaneous, where God just takes something out of you. But God doesn't transform every part of your spiritual being in an instant. He can change some things, and some people have never experienced that, but I've known people who've experienced things, I've experienced things, where there was something I was wrestling with I thought I could never stop wrestling with. It's always going to be something that's going to be an injury that that wound is never going to close. And God just closed it, sealed it, covered it, and the next thing I knew, I looked and it was gone. The wound was gone. And I mean, nothing had changed. I didn't understand what happened. I don't mean a physical wound either. I didn't understand what happened, but it was just gone. God just took it out. But that's not the normal way things work. There's usually a process. Perfection is through a progressive process. And the level to which you can progress is different under different dispensations. The level to which Adam could have progressed, that sounds funny because we think Adam was already at the peak. He wasn't at the peak. If he was at the peak, he would not have been able to sin. It's that simple. He did sin. He proved he was not fully spiritually mature. He had not grown to that level, which I don't believe God created him. Here's a perfect example of how God doesn't do these kind of things instantaneously. 
I don't think God instantaneously created Adam in a perfect state that could not sin. He created Adam in a state that was perfect that could sin. His intent was for Adam to grow in his relationship with him to the place where he would not ever sin. Adam's fall, despite the fact that he had Eve tempting him and he had the serpent tempting her, Adam's fall is different than our situation in some ways. We have far more temptations around us than Adam did. Adam just had one thing he had to say no to. Just one thing. One thing. Now, God would have slowly started developing and working with Adam if Adam had been obedient to this. He would have worked on him, and from level to level, Adam would have grown to the point where there was nothing God could not trust him with. I said this earlier, you can have a child that is your spitting image. They might look just like you. They might act like you. They might have your qualities. But if you are a person of great character and you've had a lot of experiences that have caused you to have great faith in God and the other things that happen as a person grows and matures, if they're growing and maturing in a positive way, and that is still a child, he may talk like daddy. He may look like daddy. He may have a lot of daddy's dispositional qualities, but he doesn't have daddy's experience. He doesn't have what daddy has learned, you know. So you're hoping when you have a child like that, he might be your image, you know, your reflection, but he isn't you yet. I'm not saying Adam was going to become God, but he has to grow to really fill your shoes, so to speak, in terms of where you may be hoping that he matures to. Both Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but they had to grow up into the fullness of that image. And by the way, so did Jesus, which might stun some people, not in this building, but the Bible is very clear. He grew in knowledge and stature and in favor with God and man. But he was, again, coming back to Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5, he was made perfect, which means he had to grow because if he was already at the level of perfection that's referring to, he couldn't be made that way. He already was there. If you're six foot tall and you've always been six foot tall, you wouldn't say somebody is going to be made six foot tall unless you meant originally they were made that way. But I already told you, when you look at those two passages in Hebrews 2.10 and in the fifth chapter of Hebrews, let's just look at them for a second. Hebrews 2.10 says, It became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, it's talking about God, in bringing many sons unto glory for the purpose of that. The whole point of bringing many sons unto glory had to start with his son being brought unto glory. His son had to go on to perfection. His son had to be made perfect. And then once his son was made perfect, then many sons can be made perfect. Anyone who follows in his footsteps. They're not going to be made perfect at a lower level of perfection. How ridiculous is that? He is the standard in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That isn't talking about his birth, that he was made perfect by suffering through childbirth. That's talking about him being made perfect through the sufferings he went through as a man all the way up to 33 and a half years of age when he was killed on the cross. He went through a process that made him perfect. He was already perfect in the sense of being sinless. I brought these two passages up to this precious brother. And this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. How people get taught things, but they've never really studied it for themselves. Or unfortunately, no matter how intelligent their teachers were, their teachers never really studied it for themselves. You know how many brilliant men and brilliant ministers believe what they believe because someone wrote a book and they read the book or went to college and here's what they told me in seminary about this doctrine, so that must be true. They never did study it out for themselves. And if they would have really brought up some of their questions in seminary, they would have been labeled probably as a heretic. So, of course, they're not going to do that. They're just going to go along with the program, want to get your license or ordination or whatever. Got to stay in the fold as far as not losing your position. That's why we have such a mess on our hands because so many people, brilliant people, 
have really not studied the Bible to find the truth. They've studied the Bible to back up whatever tradition they've been taught. So they've been taught a tradition, and they're sure it's right. It's got to be right. Everybody else says it is. And -and so-and-so that wrote this book or taught me, they said it's right. So I've got to search the scriptures, not to see whether it be so, which is what, you know, the Bereans did. Paul was praising them for. He said, you know, I preach to him, I teach him. Then they search the scriptures to see whether it be so. You think someone would be saying, isn't that rude? No, that's fantastic. It means you've got people that really love the truth. They're not just caught up in your personality. They're not just caught up in your charisma or your intelligence or whatever it is as a teacher that is your skill. They may respect you and love you, but they want the truth. And the best way to get the truth is, if they think you've got it, search the scriptures to see whether it be so. The problem is, some people are searching the scriptures to prove that it's so. You understand the difference? Searching the scriptures to see whether it's so is not the same thing as searching the scriptures to prove what somebody told you is so. And most people coming out of seminaries are searching the scriptures with the intent of proving what they've been taught. Let me see how I can make sure I've got my scriptures lined up to back up my apologetics for what they taught me in seminary. No. Why don't you try to find out what the Bible really says? Because they've been doing that same thing for generations. They just have taught something that goes back that was wrong to begin with, and they reinforce it one generation after another. And every generation just continues the reinforcement by saying, well, it had to be true because the last generation taught it, so we're going to do whatever we can to find scriptures to prove it's true. We're not looking for scriptures to prove what we think is true is true. We're looking for scriptures to find the truth. And it might not be what we think is true. This other passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 5.9 says, Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So, being made perfect. I was talking to this precious brother and he said, I don't understand why you brethren think somebody can be perfect at a level that's higher than being externally sinless. You're going to have to show me in the Bible where there's a level of perfection higher, this was part of the issue was perfection, than just being externally sinless. He wanted to keep on saying, I think perfection is possible right now. Being a member of the bride is possible right now. I said, well, what is the standard for that? He said, just not doing any external sins. I said, so you can have evil thoughts. You can have lusts and things going on inside of you. He goes, as long as you don't do any external sins. Well, here's the problem with those kind of statements. Number one, something I mentioned earlier. That's not what Jesus seemed to be saying in the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus says, if you're lusting after someone in your heart, you might as well be committing adultery with them, that's a serious problem for somebody that thinks, as long as you're not doing external sins. So he said, where do you see anybody in the Bible that got to this point you're talking about? And I said, don't you believe Jesus was there? And he said, well, Jesus was always there to the point where he couldn't think any sinful thoughts. I said, well, if he didn't think any sinful thoughts, he couldn't be tempted. If he never had any thought come to him that could have potentially created sin that was an evil thought, he couldn't have been tempted by anything. And he was tempted in all points. See, the thing is, Hebrews is a pretty powerful book. It's not only got that scripture, the one you were talking about, Brother Bishop, I think. He was tempted in all points. Tempted. You can't be tempted if there's not something in you that can be tempted, right? Bring all the broccoli you want. You're not going to tempt me. There's nothing in me to be tempted. Now, I could change my nature. And I told you, pray that I do. Pray that I hit 50 in a couple of weeks here. And pray when I hit 50 on the 23rd that all of a sudden, I just have this deep excitement about everything green. And I don't just mean green frosting either. Everything green, you know. And I'm looking for every kind of vegetable to eat and become a vegetarian or worse yet, a vegan, you know. Pray for me. That'd be the best thing in the world for me. Maybe I'll live forever if I, you know, they think that that's what'll happen. We'll see. I got another plan for living forever. But this brother, he was telling me, he says, show me somebody in that situation. 
I said, well, do you believe Jesus was capable of sin? Well, yeah, Jesus was capable of sin. And he said that he was capable of sin, but he didn't do any external sin, and that's a standard we have to measure up to. We're still capable of sin, but we don't do any external sin. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a man who was highly educated. He had an advanced degree, brilliant, and one of the top ministers in his portion of that denomination. I mean, he had been very successful. Brilliant individual. I mean, one of the smartest people his age I've ever talked to. I said, what about Hebrews 2.10? And what about Hebrews 5.9? Jesus was made perfect. I said, if Jesus' sinless perfection that he existed in from the womb is the only perfection, it's not overcoming anything greater than that. It's just, I'm just keeping myself from doing any external sins. I said, we know Jesus didn't do any external sins, but we know he was tempted. So what does it mean that he was made perfect? He did not seem to even know those scriptures were in the Bible. This is a man that has had to have read his Bible 50 times, deeply studied it, deep into the original languages. I mean, brilliant individual. This is what I mean. You are taught a certain way, or your mind gets trained a certain way, and you can read right through scriptures and entirely miss that they are totally contradicting your doctrine or whatever your tradition is. And he read those scriptures, and I can still recall, this is just show you how tight people can get about their views. I was so gentle with him about it. I was just like, tell me what you think this is saying, you know. We had the same problem in Philippians when we got to Paul talking about being made perfect. I said, you know, Paul said, this is a man who was an apostle. He certainly had a conversion experience, right? He certainly was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? He had to be somebody who was going to have a resurrection, right? Oh, yes, he was going to. All right, let's read Philippians. In Philippians, Paul says, there's this resurrection I'm still striving for. I said, do you see that Paul was striving for a different resurrection? He obviously already had a resurrection, the hope of a resurrection of some kind, but he's still striving for a resurrection. He had told me, he said, well, Paul was perfect. He wasn't doing any sins. And he was basing that on Paul's own statement in Philippians as touching the law, I was blameless. I said, all right, Paul was blameless according to the law. Why in the very same chapter later did he say, as far as perfection is concerned, I've not already attained? This is what I mean. This is what preconceptions will do to you. He said, Paul was just being humble. He was perfect. He said he was blameless according to the law, and the law is external sin. So all you have to do is just be externally sinless. Paul was under the law. This is what I asked earlier, Brother Lee. Why did anybody need the Holy Spirit then? Given that there were people that could live without sinning under the law, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Not just the Holy Spirit in the sense that it's just some extra little benefit. The Holy Spirit is the mechanism by which we are born again. The very fact that you're born again and you're living and walking in the Spirit, they couldn't do that under the Old Testament. And yet they could live in an externally sinless way. So why would God give you more power if you already had enough power? And all you had to do is live in an externally sinless way. Why do you need more power to live on a higher level of relationship with God? Because he expects a higher level than just external obedience. Paul clearly was a man who was not going around doing sin. So why would he say, I've not yet attained? Neither am I already perfect. And he said, but I press. I'm striving for it. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Some of the modern translators have tried to argue, and I don't think there's justifiable reason for this. They've tried to argue that's talking about just the upward call of being in a resurrection. But that'd be a very strange way of saying that. We believe it is a higher calling. All Christians have a calling, but there's a higher calling. The bride calling is a higher calling. He was pressing for something more than general salvation. 
He had already obviously had general salvation in the sense of conversion and the experiences he'd had, but he hadn't attained perfection, which is the standard of that higher calling. So you got Paul, you've got Jesus in Hebrews 2.10 and 5.9, who was made perfect by the things that he suffered. Though he was perfect and blameless and sinless throughout his entire life, he was made perfect, which means has to be a different level of perfection, has to be a different kind of perfection. So his perfection he had in terms of being sinless was not quite the same, but similar to Paul saying, touching the law, I was blameless. I did nothing to displease God. But there were things within me that could potentially cause me to displease God. And that's what had to be overcome. That's what it comes down to. There's something in your nature that has to be overcome. And we believe that happens in seasons. That it's not something that, at least normatively, happens all through history, but there is an early and a latter rain season in which God creates that kind of a harvest where somebody come up to that level. Now, I believe that is true in terms of this 2,000-year period from the early church to the latter rain church. But once we move into the millennial rain, it's harvest time for 1,000 years. It'll be harvest time for potentially 2,000 years, depending on how long you think the 8,000-year day is. But it'll be a harvest time for more than 1,000 years. Meaning for more than a thousand years, the potential to go on to perfection will be present. The full power will be there. The full knowledge will be there. But I believe that that full knowledge and power and other components, the five offices of ministry and their fullness, are not there except during these two periods, the early rain period and the latter rain period. That is why I think it's hard for some to wrap their mind around what it would be like to be at that place. Because if I'm correct in my understanding that there is little to anyone, if anyone at all, that has gone on to that level since the early church, some might believe there's been a few, you know, just special cases. Some might believe nobody has, that since the early church, it's not going to happen again until the latter rain, that someone will rise to that height of perfection. If that's true, we're looking at something that is almost 2,000 years ago since someone has done it. So it would be hard to wrap your mind around what it would be like when nobody has done it for 2,000 years. Or if anyone's done it, it's been a very small number, if I'd be willing to even be that flexible about it. But if nobody or very few have done it over the space of the last 2,000 years, reach that level of perfection that is not just holding external sins in check, but rising to that level, then it would be something for us to be hard to wrap our minds around. It may not be as hard to wrap your mind around that if you were living in the first century and you saw some of those men. You knew them personally, and you felt their spirit. You knew what it felt like to be around them. There are people, even right now, saints, even though I don't believe we've reached that level yet, and I don't think any of us have reached that level where we are beyond sin, there's people you can be around right now. You can feel the Spirit of God all over you just being in their presence, especially when somebody has really been with Jesus, and you can tell they have just come out of His presence, and the Spirit is all over them, and you can feel that. Imagine what it would feel like if you're dealing with an overcomer. And that's why I say there'd be something you'd feel. I think in terms of the overcomer, it's presently impossible for me to speak experientially about what a full, complete overcomer would feel like. But the word that keeps coming back to me every time I've been asked that question is a state of absolute peace. Because what it comes down to, when you've come to that place, there is nothing remaining within you at war with God. And if there's nothing remaining within you at war with God, you might not think there's anything in you at war with God right now, but you could be tested, you'll find out. There's some things where his will might cross your will. There's nothing left in you where your will could cross God's will. There's nothing left in you that is in conflict with God. Your disposition is perfectly vibrating in harmony with his. Well, one thing that would occur is, that's the greatest mechanism of all the mechanisms. I gave you a few, and this is the last one I'll give you before we close. 
One of the greatest mechanisms of of all is that change of transformation where your spirit becomes like God's spirit in some area. And then the things that are attractive to God become attractive to you. And the things that are repulsive to God become repulsive to you. You get to that place. But I think because it's a progressive type of change, I don't think you suddenly are going to feel the shock like what just happened. It's not instantaneous like that. I think you'd be growing to a point where you wouldn't even realize. It's one of the things that takes pride out of the equation, you know. It isn't like a victory where we think of a battle where all of a sudden you fought one battle and you just completely destroyed the enemy and now I'm the king, so to speak. It's not like that. It's a series of battles. It's a series of things. And so many of them are so big for us that we certainly wouldn't take credit for the victories we won if we have any sense. We realize how much God was involved. And it happens progressively and slowly until finally, coming back to Second Corinthians 3 that I was referring to earlier when it says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We're changed from one level of glory into another level of glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit that does that. You're changed from one level of glory to another level of glory. And it's by the Spirit of the Lord into that third chapter of Second Corinthians. Without the Spirit of the Lord, well, let's take the Spirit of the Lord out of the equation. If all that we had to do is keep eternal sin in check, what level of glory could we come to? Well, the same level of glory some people came to under the Old Testament. They didn't have the Spirit. But we have the Spirit, which enables us to go from one level of glory to another level of glory. That, I think, is meant real generally, just different levels of glory. But you could make this argument. There's a level of glory where you're holding all your sins in check, like Paul could say he did under the Old Testament. That's an incredible bragging point. Say, such in the law is blameless. But there's another level of glory you can come to by the Spirit of the Lord that you could not come to without the Spirit of the Lord. One level of glory is the type of perfection you could have attained under the Old Testament. I held myself in check as touching the law, whatever law of God was in effect at that time. There were different laws at different times. I'm blameless. That'd be an incredible thing to say. But there's another level of glory that when the Spirit of the Lord is involved can be attained where you go beyond just the externals where God has changed the things that are the internal mechanisms of your nature. 